Well, let's turn to Philippians chapter 4, if you're not already there. This has been a, a really enjoyable study. It's been challenging at times. It's, uh, it's always a little bit sad and a little bit exciting to come to the end of a, of a book. I think that we've been in Philippians for about 25 sermons or 30 sermons or so, and, and uh, longer than I originally planned, but Linda would tell you that it's always, it's always that way. I'm always thinking, yeah, we're going we're gonna to finish, and then I come in and say, well, let's just look at one verse today, and you know, it all kind of has its way of working out according to the Lord's will as we study but today we are bringing Philippians to a close. Uh, as I mentioned, Justin is going to be speaking next week. I'm going to do a, a few short-term messages, and sometimes, sometime probably at the end of July we'll start in the book of Hebrews. And uh, I am really looking forward to Hebrews. Uh, the preaching conference I attended in, in New Hampshire a few weeks ago was centered on the book of Hebrews, and so it was Interesting to get some other views and perspectives and to make some some broad notes. Let's ask the Lord's blessing and then dive in. Father, we thank you for our time together and the time that you provide us uh, in our our week and in our schedule and by the the pattern and example of your people for the past 2,000 years to gather together, to open your word together, to read it, to examine it, to study it, to seek to understand what it is you have said and how it is we are to respond. And so, Lord, I ask that your spirit would set a watch over my mouth and my heart and open ears for all of us, that we would grow today, that we would be fed and nourished on your good word today. And we commit this time to you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, as we we begin in verse... uh, As we begin in verse 14, reading through verse 23, Paul writes, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus, The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. As Paul begins, he continues on from the the context that we saw last week where he has described his contentment in the Lord and he summarizes it in verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And what he means there is he knows how to be prosperous and he knows how to be hungry. He knows how to go without and he knows how to have a, uh, 
an ample amount. And he says in verse 14, in spite of me doing, able to do all things through him who strengthens me, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. He, he wants to strike a balance, it appears, between uh, relying on others and appreciating others. He was confident in the Lord's willingness and ability to provide for him in every circumstance. And he seems to be especially delighted that it was the Philippians who did this. Uh, the Philippians had really begun their, their lives in Christ with generosity. Uh, if you'd like to turn, to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul writes a, a few verses as he writes to the, the church in Corinth. He's in the process of raising money for Christians in Jerusalem who are facing a famine. And he says to them, in, in, beginning in verse 1, he says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, which was centered on Philippi that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overwhelmed in the well, overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints, and this not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So very quickly with the churches in Macedonia and the church in Philippi, uh, we see a few things. We see that their giving is a matter of the grace of God. They didn't give because they had deep pockets. They gave because of God's work in them. When they gave, Paul says, they gave liberally. They gave with abundant joy in spite of their deep poverty. It's almost as though as that message of the famine in Jerusalem came, the Philippians said, we've had enough and you've been hungry. Let's trade for a while. We'll be hungry, and you have enough. And they shared in that. When they gave, it was not just according to their ability, but beyond their ability. They went, they went without themselves for a time in order to give. They're like the widow that Jesus describes in the Gospels, who, who as they were standing in the temple, and people are coming and bringing their gifts. Uh, a widow comes, and she puts in... The, the two of the smallest coins they had, they, the, the old King James Version is mites, but it, it was a, just a sliver of nothing. It, it, it was a, a penny for us. It was the kind of thing that if you saw it on the ground, you wouldn't bother to pick it up because it isn't worth the effort. And Jesus said she gave more than all of the rest because she gave out of her need. That's what the Philippians did. And he even says they begged repeatedly to be allowed to give, they begged us with much urging for the favor of participation in this. It's, it's as though as Paul was coming through the region, as he was raising money for the famine, and he came to the church in Philippi, he looked at them and said, but I know you, and I know that you don't have enough yourselves, and I am not going to put the, the request on you. I'm not even going to ask that you give, because I know you already don't have enough. But they beg for the favor, for the privilege of participating in the church. Other churches are giving. Other churches are doing their part. Why won't you accept our part? 
And Paul was deeply impressed by this. Back in Philippians chapter 4 then, as he, he, he speaks to them, he says, you know that you are not the, the you, they, rather in verse 15, you know that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving a, but you alone. Even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Paul and Silas and, and that team were in, in Philippi for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, a, a fairly short amount of time. They were eventually arrested. They were beaten. They were put in jail overnight. There was the earthquake, the, the Philippian jailer episode in Acts chapter 16. And then they were escorted to the city limits by the city leaders. He wouldn't leave quietly. And, and they headed west. And the first town they came to then was Thessalonica, about 75 miles away. So at that time, a four or five day walk at not, not too bad a pace. And given that he and Silas had been beaten, uh, it may have taken them a full week to just kind of gently make their way there. They were in Thessalonica preaching the book of Acts says, for three Sabbaths. Uh, at, the, at the narrow part, three Sabbaths covers 15 days, right? It covers Saturday, 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 encapsulating two full weeks and, and, and a little bit. At the most, they were there for four weeks. And he said, so I was, I was gone for five weeks, and in that five-week span of time, you sent money at least twice. Well, that's generosity. That's a, a, a spirit of wanting to participate and share. They've always had a history of this kind of generosity. He says in verse 17, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. And, and he's balancing off. Uh, I can do all things through him who strengthens me in 13. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Verse 17, not that I'm looking for the money. I'm looking for the blessing you receive when you give. And that kind of that, that attitude takes us back to the previous Verses from 10 to 13, where Paul basically says, I'm content in whatever circumstances the Lord has me. He will provide for my needs in his time, in his way. And I am so delighted he did it through you. Because those who provide this are blessed by God. And he says in verse 18, as he describes their gift, he says, I have received everything in full. I've received everything you gave Epaphroditus to give me, and as a result of that, I have an abundance. He says, I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. And then he calls it a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So on the, on the surface of it, I think it's good for us to recognize that the actual amount given doesn't determine the, the quality of the gift. Quantity and quality in biblical terms are not connected to one another. Um, it, he speaks without suggesting that they should have given more. He gladly accepts what he has. And when he says, I have an abundance... I am amply supplied. I think the sense there is what you sent was enough for my immediate needs, and I don't know if that means his needs for the day or for the week or for a month. Clearly, at some point, 
their gift would run out. But he said, I am amply supplied. I've received everything in full, and, and I have an abundance. I have some left over to take me into this, this next season. But it's important that we understand here that it's not just that Paul was amply supplied, but that God is well-pleased with what they have done. God is well-pleased with their gift. There was a time when, uh, in, in my, my preaching, when I, I didn't like to name names when people misstep and misspeak. But when, when notable people, when influential people misspeak, it's important that names are named as a, as a means of protection. A month or so ago, five weeks, six weeks perhaps now, Andy Stanley, pastor of a, of a megachurch, said in a sermon that the apostles unhitched the New Testament, unhitched the church from the Old Testament. And the Old Testament doesn't matter. The Old Testament has no application anymore. And in this, he specifically included the Ten Commandments. And he specifically included what he called, quote, the creation myth, unquote. He's narrowed down what it means to believe truth as Jesus died and rose from the dead. That's all that matters. The Bible itself is superfluous. We don't really need it. We just need to know that Jesus died and rose again. How you know that Jesus died and rose again without the Bible, he doesn't quite explain. So I think it's important that we understand here in verse 18 that when Paul says your gift, Philippians, is a fragrant aroma and an acceptable sacrifice well-pleasing to God, he is using Old Testament sacrificial terms. We can understand, if the only book of the Bible we had was Philippians, we could understand fragrant aroma. That, that kind of makes sense. We can arrive at some sense of that. Uh, acceptable sacrifice. That, that's, we, could, we could work with that. Well-pleasing to God. We don't need the Old Testament to understand the basic sense of that. But there's a depth to it that if we don't go to the Old Testament, we're, we're not going to comprehend. So... Um, in Leviticus chapter 22, you can listen or you can turn there with me. In Leviticus chapter 22, from verses 17 to 21, and this is just one example. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons and to all the sons of Israel and say to them, Any man of the house of Israel or of the aliens in Israel who presents his offering, whether it is any of their votive or any of their free will offerings, which they present to the Lord for a burnt offering, for you to be accepted, <coughs> it must be a, ma- a male. <coughs> Excuse me. It must be a male without defect from the cattle, the sheep, or the goats. Whatever has a defect, you shall not offer, for it will not be accepted for you. When a man offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, to fulfill a special vow or for a free will offering of the herd or of the flock, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. And this is just one of, of many statements made in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy about the sacrificial system and God's requirements for the sacrificial system. We see here immediately that all atonement is substitutionary. Atonement. Verse 19 speaks of the sinner being accepted. 
Verse 20 speaks of the sacrifice being accepted on the sinner's behalf. And verse 21 speaks of the sacrifice being accepted. If we reverse it, we really get to the sense of of the, the logical flow of it. The sacrifice must be accepted. If the sacrifice is accepted in the place of the sinner, then the sinner is accepted. God expects perfection. He expects an offering without defect. You are not perfect. You are not without defect. When you come before him under the old covenant with a sacrifice that is perfect and without defect, which means it meets his qualification, he gives you credit for the perfection and the defectlessness of that sacrifice. Sinners can't bring a flawed sacrifice to God. There's no point. And in fact, in the Old Testament economy, when a sinner brought that perfect sacrifice to God, having taken pains to ensure that it was perfect and without defect, they were saying, Lord, I acknowledge that I am not perfect. I am not without defect. Obviously, the, 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 uh, the Old Testament sacrificial system carried enormous pressure. It was an enormous burden. The New Testament, by the way, the apostles did not unhitch the New Testament from the Old Testament. Uh, Peter said it was an unbearable burden. It was something that nobody could actually satisfactorily carry out. And they were weighed down by it all the time. Well, in, in the New Covenant, we have justification. In, in uh, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish or unhitch, but to fulfill. Jesus came to fulfill. So Romans chapter 5, verse 19, Paul writes, Through the one man's disobedience, that's Adam by the way, you can't unhitch the New Testament from the Old Testament or you lose the thinking of it. Through Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Jesus, as the sacrifice, was perfect and without defect and, frankly, a male. He met the qualifications of of God. He perfectly obeyed the law. He fulfilled it perfectly. He satisfied it to the smallest detail. When we trust in Christ and believe in the gospel, his obedience is counted as our obedience. His faithfulness is counted as our faithfulness. His righteousness is counted as our righteousness. He becomes the perfect substitute for us. And when Jesus died on the cross, the law's authority over him was ended. When he rose from the dead, he rose free from the constraints and the authority of the law. When we believe in the gospel of Jesus, his death and resurrection become our death and resurrection. Paul writes in Romans 7, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. You were made to die to the law. The law did not die to you. God didn't unhitch it. The law remains in effect. We need to understand this. The law of God remains in effect. We cannot be saved by it. 
We're saved by the one who perfectly fulfilled it and by his death grants us his, his own righteousness and his own obedience and his justification. So think about this. Jesus is the acceptable sacrifice, right? Jesus is the acceptable sacrifice. He was accepted for you. And by grace through faith, you are accepted. Think about these words now. Jesus was acceptable. His offering for you was accepted, and you are accepted. But you're not acceptable, not till you're completely sanctified. Jesus remains the acceptable sacrifice, the acceptable offering, so that we would be, we would be accepted. Jesus was acceptable. He was accepted for me. I am accepted. If you ever have doubts about your standing with God and you're thinking to yourself, I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm not perfect, I'm not faithful, I don't know enough, I don't pray enough, I don't serve enough, I don't work hard enough, you've gone back, not even to the Old Testament, you've gone prior to the law of Moses. Even under the law of Moses, God said, you choose a substitute. And we have the perfect substitute who who doesn't just provide a covering for sin, but takes it away. Jesus' death justifies us, makes us righteous, or rather declares us righteous entirely. So ourselves, our hearts, our minds, our souls, our bodies, our work, our prayers are justified. Think about this. Your prayers are already justified before the Lord. You don't have any qualifications to meet to be heard. That doesn't mean that, that you have, God has a rubber stamp with your name on it and yes printed so that every time you pray, you get a yes right now, immediate. But he hears your prayers. Your ministry, your work, whatever that is, is has already been justified. Your giving, the Philippians giving now, is a fragrant aroma as a sacrifice. It is an acceptable sacrifice. It is well pleasing to God because of what Jesus did. If, if, if we don't understand anything else today, if your life is filled with confusion and uncertainty about all kinds of things, try and get this. Jesus was accepted. He was acceptable on your behalf and you are accepted because of him. Not apart from him. Not in addition to him. It's a substitution. Your life for his, his life for yours. God makes a gracious provision, we see. Jesus, I forgot to show you that. Jesus was an acceptable sacrifice. He was accepted for us. We are accepted. God made a gracious provision. Verse 19 Back in in Philippians 4, Paul writes, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. This is what God does for those with whom he is well pleased. You remember, God was well pleased with his son. 
You remember in Matthew chapter 3, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God, uh, John saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on Jesus, and behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Because God the Father was well pleased with Jesus, you are accepted. You are accepted. God met Jesus' needs during his ministry. He was well pleased with his son. Jesus had the power that he needed. He had the provision that he needed. The same thing is true of the Philippians. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He met their needs. Now, he didn't make them wealthy. He didn't make them rich. This is one of those misused and abused verses. I mentioned that this week. Televangelists will say, my God will supply all my needs in Christ Jesus. And so I'm, I'm praying for a, a new jet airplane and I'm praying for another house because my, my current 10,000 square foot mansion isn't big enough or I need something else when I get bored. God isn't going to make us rich He's going to provide for us, enable our continued service, and store up treasures in heaven for us as we faithfully trust him. So important that we understand that God's riches in glory in Christ Jesus can't be measured by a dollar sign. That they can't be weighed on a scale. That they can't be folded and and put in a wallet. That's an earthly idea. It is funny in Fiddler on the Roof. If you've seen Fiddler on the Roof, there's a point where the young man Perchik is talking to Tevye, and he says to Tevye, money is the world's curse. And Tevye immediately says, may God strike me with it, and may I never recover. It's funny. One of my favorite scenes in the movie, but what the Bible says is the rich never have an advantage with God. Those who are materially poor don't have an advantage either. Those who are spiritually poor have the kingdom of heaven. But just being poor is of no advantage. But being rich is actually a disadvantage, biblically speaking. The Bible describes riches as being temporary and uncertain and unsatisfying and deceptive. It says that riches often lead to pride and faithlessness and rebellion and fear and indulgence and oppression of others the poor are commanded to never envy the rich the rich are commanded to be humble to be thankful to give god thanks to trust him and not their stuff and to live with with generosity so philippians 419 is not a promise to the philippians that god will make them rich it's not a promise that god is going to make us rich it's a promise that god will supply the needs of his people and he will do so as he has done since The book of Genesis, before the fall, God took man and he put him in the garden to work the garden. And God said, you can eat of any tree out there except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but it's up to you to go pick the food and you're here to tend. You're here to work. The same thing is true today. We have to do our part. We have to work. We have to be wise with our possessions. We have to be prudent and we ought to be generous. And God promises to bless our efforts and our our prudence and our generosity. As Linda and I have had a little bit of of exposure with with people at the rescue mission, it simply is is true that the, the vast majority who come to the mission for help are not Christians. The overwhelming majority. 
They don't have faith in Christ, and they have lived with, with bad decisions and poor decisions for, for at least a, an extended period of time, if not their entire lives. And when you do have those who, who might have a credi- credible testimony of trusting in Jesus, they don't, and I, we haven't seen this yet, perhaps Justin has seen it, but we've not yet seen anybody who has a credible testimony of having believed, who has a credible testimony of actually living in faith and living in obedience. There is something about the disobedience and the untrust, the, the distrust of God that causes some people to be in terrible, terrible straits. We're not going to judge them for that, because, but for the grace of God, there go we. We're going to help them. But at the same time, when that person sits down at the table who's depending on a, a group like the rescue mission for a meal or for clothing and says, I love Jesus and I've always obeyed him, that's just almost certainly not true. We can't and don't give even a fraction back to God of what he gives us. There is a view about this verse, my God will supply all your needs, that what Paul is saying is you can't owe God anything. So if you've given to me, God is not going to be a debtor to you. He's going to give it back. Well, we could never owe God anything if we gave him everything. Steve Lawson said in the, in the video this morning, it was really interesting about people who say, well, should I give little things or should I only give big things to God? And Lawson said, there are no, you don't have any big things as far as God is concerned. Everything that you have is little as far as God is concerned, including your own life. It's little to him. So you give everything to him. And what has God given you today? I've had people say that to me. What has God given me? Well, how about that heartbeat and that one and that one and that one? How about that breath and the air that you're breathing? How about that? How about the light of the sun? How about the fact that you are alive right now, that you are being maintained actively? Colossians 1 says, in Jesus, all things cohese, all things hold together. That, that's not a, a theoretical, idealistic thing. That's a statement of fact. The, the reason that our molecules and atoms, actually our atoms, don't just dissolve into protons and neutrons and whatever else is in an atom, the reason for that is that the power of God is holding us together all the time. What has God given you? What has God given you? He's given you everything. So he doesn't supply our needs to pay us back. He supplies our needs because of his love and his care for us. As Paul brings the letter to a close, verse 20, we see that God's glory comes first. Now to God and Father, now to our God and Father, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul began this letter, if, if you recall, by introducing himself as, and Timothy as bondservants or slaves of Christ Jesus. And the letter goes on to describe his work as a, as a servant of God. And he calls the Philippians to serve the Lord and to serve one another and to live as servants. <coughs> Paul, for his part, served as an apostle, as a writer of scripture, as a 
teacher of the word of God, as a preacher of the gospel, as a church planter, among various other things. The Philippians were like us. The Philippians were, were just like us in this room. Students and children and uh, re- retirees, husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, teachers, farmers, builders, merchants. They were, they were just like us. When, when he says now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever, amen, he doesn't say, and of course, the only way for God to be glorified is if you stop doing whatever silly secular thing it is that you do and you go into full-time vocational ministry. You serve God right where you are. It's, it's often not the most exciting place to be. But it's the best possible place to be because it's where the Lord has placed you. When the Lord called me into ministry 30 years ago now, this year, I didn't get called into ministry. I used that term. I just used that. In a sense, he called me out of ministry and into the work of equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. Because the ministry happens where you are. It doesn't happen where I am. For me to, to be involved in evangelism, I have to do exactly what you do. I have to go look for opportunities. Being who I am, I'm an introvert. I'm quiet. I don't know how to break into an evangelistic conversation with somebody standing in line at High V. I remember hearing Greg Laurie one time at a, at a conference, and he was talking about his evangelistic work doing the Crusades, and he said, I don't do one-on-one evangelism. I don't know how to do it. Now, if I could have a pulpit, he said, if I could walk around the grocery store with a pulpit around my neck, and I could just say, I see that you're buying peas. Can I tell you about the Prince of Peas? He said, I I do find under certain contexts, not others. Others are really blessed in one-on-one conversations. God blesses their work. See, he he uses all of that. When we are looking at the at him and saying, your glory is first, your glory is highest. How do I do, Lord, then how do I stay at home with my kids? How do I raise my kids? How do I travel in business? How do I build homes? How do I care for the needy? And how do I do that in my home? How do I care for my husband, for my wife, and for my kids, and my grandkids, and my parents, my grandparents? How do I do that and glorify your name? That's that's the aim of this. It's a statement that encompasses all of us. And everything that we do. And that comes down to what he says in the very last verse of the Bible. Verse 21, he gives some greetings. Greet every saint in Christ. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. But then he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. At the end of the day, grace is what makes the difference. At the end of the day, it's that Jesus was accepted and God ex- or was acceptable, and God accepted him in our place, and therefore we are accepted, which is all by grace that enables us to do what we do and make a difference where we're able to make a difference. 
It's not because of our efforts. It's not because of our intelligence. It's not because of, of our determination to do that, even our best intentions. And so I, I pray for me and I pray for us that as we go today, as we go every day, that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ would be with our spirit. That we would understand that as we grow in Christ, and, and all of you have been in the Lord for a significant amount of time, I know that. As you grow in the Lord, th- there's, there's a tendency to say, but I should be further. I should know more. I should be this. I should be that. The, the truth is that our, our growth is, is measured in, in millionths of an inch over the course of our lifetimes. And the grace of God is measured by the light year. And we continue to rely on his grace. Father, as we go, as we go in your name, with your word, with your purpose, would you remind us that it's the grace of Jesus that makes the difference. That he was acceptable and was accepted on our behalf so that we would be accepted. Would you remind us, Lord, that whether our giving is is financial or the giving of abilities, the giving of time, that we can never outgive you, that we are not not waiting for you to repay us, but rather rather we are returning to you a, a fraction of what you have given us. And as we do that, even those small fractions, even those small things that we are able to do, Lord, you are storing up treasures for us with you in heaven, protecting them and guarding them. We thank you for this letter. We thank you for the, the, the Spirit granting Paul these words to write to the Philippians so many years ago for preserving them for us to be able to study. We bless your name, Lord. And we ask, Lord, that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ would be with our spirits. And in your holy name we pray. Amen.